Warning, Binge Mode contains adult content. In The Good Place Season 2, an on-the-rebound Janet creates Derek, played by Jason Manzukas, great friend of the pod to be her boyfriend, called Derek. And the show often mentions that Derek has wind chimes for genitals. So, in the words of the immortal Mindy St. Clair, if you can work with that, listen on. Otherwise, check out Jam Session. One more warning, guys. Binge Mode contains spoilers. Spoilers! Spoilers! If you have not watched all 26 chapters of The Good Place, including the season two finale that just aired, grab some clam chowder and pop Cannonball Run 2 into your VCR instead. I need to catch up on one. (laughs) Do you have one? Yeah, I do. When you're ready to shout hot diggity dog with us, Ah. come on back and we'll be here waiting. And now, Binge Mode. You know, I had a friend that said whenever she was doing something bad, she'd hear this this little voice in her head, distant little voice saying, oh, come on now, you know this is wrong. And then when she started doing good things, that voice went away. It was a relief. Your friend sounds like she's one pickle short of a pickle party. (laughs) She was a little rough around the edges, but she was also a really good person when she tried. See, I think that little voice was her conscience trying to guide her in the right direction. I gotta go home. What do I owe you? The real question, Eleanor, is what do we owe to each other? Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, it's a great website. It's a great website, guys. This website is definitely something you'd read in The Good Place. I believe so, yes. Joining me today, now that he's finished explaining the plot of Kangaroo Jack over a drink at Sting's Desert Rosé, it's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hello, Mal. Yeah. You know the problem with being a do-gooder podcaster? Nobody cares! But we're going to keep trying anyway, so a quick reminder... Every Thursday, and in this case Friday, yes, on Binge Mode Weekly, we'll be diving deep into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment. And this spring, we'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes! Dun, dun, dun. You'll be able to find both Weekly and Harry Potter on the same feed, so stay subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, please, please, rate and review us, guys. Five stars. <laughs> and please follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. We promise to deliver myriad Jake Jordles, Derek Bortles, and Blake Bortles takes. Jordles! Jordles. On today's Binge Mode Weekly, yeah. we are continuing our binge of The Good Place. On Thursday's show this week, we discussed how season one of The Good Place explores individual growth and enlightenment. And today, part two, yeah. fresh on the heels of last night's thrilling Season really? two finale. We're diving deep, deep, deep into the sophomore campaign. Again, just reiterating this. Spoiler, spoiler. warning. <laughs> For today's binge, as always, we will be going deep on details from Michael Schur's latest masterpiece, including the season two finale. So drizzle some envy mm. onto your burrito. Feel that Delicious. kick. Ooh. Because it's time to dive deep, deep to season two of The Good Place. Mal, yeah. you've been here 15 times already. Really? My God. Did you bring the cocaine I asked for? Please tell me you somehow remember this time. Mama needs some medicine. Sorry. We've met before? If you can't remember, 
we better take a quick trip down our very own King's Road home to an interdimensional hole of pancakes. I'll House of Pancakes. Time. Yes. To offer a very brief refresher on what actually happened in season two of The Good Place. So, following the events of season one, Michael, eager to salvage his experiment in eternal torment, reboots the neighborhood, erasing the memories of Eleanor, Chidi, Tahani, and Jason. Despite this, and with small variations, nearly every iteration of his good place ends the same way, with mostly Eleanor, but with cameos from Jason and Michael's butt cheeks, <laughs> figuring out that they're actually in the bad place being tortured by Michael. Our heroes struggle valiantly, sometimes not that valiantly also, to free themselves and defeat Michael and nothing works. Things come to a head when one of Michael's minions, Vicky, previously known as Real Eleanor, who's grown weary of the constant rebooting, leads a work stoppage and threatens to snitch to Sean, the emotionless cosmic demon who is Michael's boss. As a last-ditch plan, Eleanor and the gang ally with Michael by getting him to contemplate his mortality. They manage to evade the destruction of the neighborhood and escape through the bad place to the chambers of Judge Jen, played by Maya Rudolph the entity in charge of deciding disputes between the good and bad place. Michael manages to convince her that Eleanor, Chidi, Jason, and Tahani all experienced personal growth in the afterlife, something once thought impossible. He further convinces Judge Jen to send all four back to Earth. We see Eleanor live out her life from the moment of her once death, now almost death, to become a better person and eventually to find love, we hope, with Chidi. Really amazing finale, and we should just take a moment here before we get to the pointy end and our Citadel and the rest of the the segments that we're going to hit here today to just marvel at not only the quality of the season two finale and the quality of season two at large, but this show's ability to consistently reinvent itself, to be able to pull off twist upon twist upon twist to have done something as massive as the season one finale twist and then still be able to actually genuinely surprise people with what you do at the end of your sophomore campaign is astonishing. And it's aided in part by the masterful acting, you know, Ted Danson, Kristen Bell, everybody on this show, they are incredible. But the writing and the craftsmanship, we talk often when we discuss our favorite fantasy stories and sci-fi stories about how you can tell when a creator knows what the roadmap is. And this is not necessarily what you would consider a classic fantasy story, but it is fantastical in many ways. And this is certainly a case where the creator knew, this is my master plan. Much like Michael. I am the architect of this neighborhood. (laughs) Things are going a little bit better for Michael Sher than they did for Michael. Derek. I'm Derek. Mal, all I've ever really wanted was to know what it feels like to be human. And now we're going to do the most human thing of all, attempt something futile with a ton of unearned confidence and fail spectacularly. Yes! And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it by sticking with the pointy end of Vicky's torture needles. Vicky sucks. That looks very painful, by the way. The defining theme of season two of The Good Place is teamwork. Teamwork makes That's the dream teamwork. Work. Earlier this week, we examined how season one of The Good Place explored individual growth and enlightenment through the lens of the Sardian proposition that hell is other people. But what makes season two really interesting is it flips that construct on its head and posits, okay, hell is other people. I think we all agree on that in some degree or another. But isn't heaven the right people? incredible balance to be able to strike to not only present these two seemingly opposite ideas with equal clarity and strength and conviction, but to be able to make them work together in perfect harmony. And initially in season two, it actually does feature a lot of the same like fierce individualism that defines season one because 
our characters are rebooting. They're going back to where they were in season one, and we're reliving that with them. Yeah. Every reboot that we experience initially in season two showcases the same torture traits right. that put our core four in this situation in the first place. You know, Eleanor still doesn't want to be found right. out. Chidi still gets a stomachache because he can't make a decision. Tahani still desperately wants praise and approval. Jason is a lovable buffoon, an utter Bortles-loving buffoon. And speaking of Jason, yes. this is an incredibly funny season of television, <laughs> but one of the true comedic high points early on is at the beginning of season two through the series of reboots, and we get these false starts, and Michael has to keep snapping his fingers and starting over. And there's this one moment after all these series of Eleanor figuring it out in different ways where Jason comes through. Yeah. It's a big reveal. And Michael just goes, Jason? Jason figured it out? Yeah. <laughs> Jason? This is a real low point. <laughs> I love that moment when they're standing like in front of some kind of like demonic pylon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is like these weird hieroglyphs inscribed in it. It's and all the di- all the different themes for the neighborhood, yeah. you know, pizza, chowder. We get yeah. a flashback where we realize it was initially supposed to be pudding before <laughs> Janet convinced Michael <laughs> that it was supposed to be frozen yogurt. All those little touches actually go a long way toward providing this real sense yeah. of specificity, but also inevitability. Like yeah. the details are so different every time, but the result is the same. Is it fate right. or is it just the nature of these people interacting with each other that gets us to that place? And things are not going well no. for our heroes. They are in hell. We're using the word heroes loosely, Sure. by the way. <laughs> just to say that, I guess. Our protagonists. Point. Our protagonists might be more apt. But crucially, they are not going well for Michael either. He's at the point through some of these reboots. He's wearing sweatpants, guys. Michael, sharp dresser, typically. Wears a bow tie. Except, you know, he understands that some of his suits are cut a little bottom heavy. (laughs) A lot of commentary from Janet this season about Michael's wardrobe, which is really special. He's wearing sweats, letting the stubble come in, stress eating. He's failing over and over again. And then two things happen in essence, in tandem, that really show us what season two is going to be about and that bring these rival sides together. The first is that Michael's demons strike. Who knew that there was a labor union of demons? (laughs) I guess the union hands out cigars, too. (laughs) Smoke breaks. Yes. For some venting. Yes. Vicky is the face of this strike, and she makes her demands to Michael. I wasn't satisfied with that limp. I don't that like you that told role. me I could I could have at the party right. to try to appease me. I don't want to be slinging Hawaiian pizza. Come on, we all want more. We all thought we were going to get more. I would like to sing "I Will Survive" by Gloria Gaynor <laughs> in front of the gathered neighborhood. In fact, some of Vicky's demands are quite humble, yeah. actually. Yeah, <laughs> and then simultaneously, Mindy Love is her. telling Eleanor and so Chidi that they have been there fifth. Teen times before. Every one of her scenes is perfect. Yeah. The way she finishes what they're saying when they say it, it's like, oh, well, what? And then she's just like, yeah, what if you what if you do this to Michael? It's fantastic. The great reveal when Mindy's like, by the way, I've been keeping track of all your plans Here's that you literally discuss here. a board where I've been <laughs> writing down marking your idiocy for you in case we had this moment, which sure enough we're having. The cocaine line is... Truly tremendous. Did you bring the cocaine I asked for? Please tell me you somehow remembered this time. Mama needs her medicine. So tremendous. And she's not only 
explaining to them that they have been here time and again. Yeah. They have failed to thwart Michael time and again. Every time that they fail to thwart him, he reboots them. They forget. They come back. They're caught in this loop. She also shares another bit of information. Eleanor and Cheedy were together yeah. in a past reboot. They confess their love together. How does Mindy know? Well... <laughs> call it my looking hole. My looking hole. I call it my looking hole. <laughs> she filmed them. As one does. As one on does. On VHS. <laughs> one of the funniest lines when she's running through all the things that make them leave, she says, sometimes you go back because you walk in on me while I'm masturbating. Yeah. Sometimes you go back because I walk in on you while I'm masturbating. Right. It's like, Mindy really is a... Uh, she follows her bliss. She's... she's well, she spent form. a lot of time alone <laughs> Thinking about cocaine and trying to invent porn out of Anne Rice clippings. It's, it's, a, it's a tough look for her. So Michael and Eleanor and co. are finding clarity at the same time. And this comes to a head when Eleanor leads the charge. She confronts Michael. Right. But, ah, surprise. He actually doesn't want to reboot That's them right. again. He wants to team up. The plan he pitches, you guys will act like I have rebooted you in front of Vicky and co. But keep studying with Cheedy. Do your own thing right. on your own time. You won't lose your memories. You won't lose this clarity that you found. But the trust doesn't come easy. Yeah, how do you trust a demon that's been torturing you an unknown number of times? And Michael speaks about this paradox. He yes. says, you, you can't, but you have to. Logically, you shouldn't, but you have no choice. I mean, I wouldn't if I were you. It's a crazy thing, too, but you gotta. And then he runs through the attempts. Love this part. That they've ran through in trying to escape this hell. 802 times this has happened. 802. The longest one went for 11 months. The shortest, eight seconds when Michael's butt cheeks accidentally (laughs) rebooted the world. (laughs) Michael really was a human before he even tried to become a human. Yeah. And the current one has been going for one week. Eleanor wants to hold out, which makes sense. Is She's always the one that kind of understands what's going on. She doesn't want to trust Michael, and why should she? You know, think of how many people have let Eleanor down right. over the years. Her parents were humorous pieces of crap, but ultimately pieces of crap that she filed for emancipation from. Yes. Just everyone has let her down. She's pushed her coworkers away. She's pushed anyone who's tried to be friends with her away. Her roommates were two of the, the worst people ever, including... Dress bitch. Including dress bitch. <laughs> but Michael tells them, hey, this plan will only work if it's all of us. That's the only way it's going to happen. He's speaking practically. Vicky will figure this out if they're not all on the same page. But even though he's fueled by this, this feeling of self-preservation in this moment, he's hinting at the theme of this season. They can only achieve what they're seeking to achieve, freedom, escape, if they unite and operate as one. Right. And his last bit of leverage is, help me, and I will help you get to the actual good place. Ah, bribe. How very ah, human. But is this yet another scheme of Michael's? You know, Cheedy is not ignorant. And he knows that Michael's motivations aren't pure. And remember, we'll talk about this more a little bit later when we're assessing the season as a whole, but motivations were a core part of our season one discussion. Can you really be good if your motivations aren't pure? The show continues time and again to force us to consider this question. But Chidi also believes that they have a moral imperative to try to help other people, he says. Kant wrote it is our duty to improve ourselves. So whatever Michael's reasons for doing this, he's giving us our best chance to improve ourselves, to do just that. And this all leads, this debate, to a really just like chef's kiss perfect response from Eleanor. Look at what you're asking me to do. Make a deal with the actual (laughs) devil 
so that I can do homework in secret. Incredible. <laughs> so what finally so convinces much. Eleanor that prevents her from fleeing to Mindy's with like several duffel bags a of cocaine. A literal duffel bag Duffel bag, which by the way were created by Janet. What a handy person Janet I is. F- not a person, sorry. Not a person, me. not a robot, not a girl. I feel compelled to note yeah. that Isaac, yeah. the our producer, left multiple fact notes for us and they're all about cocaine. Just feel compelled to, <laughs> he is to from, mention uh, that. He is from California. <laughs> Michael's reminder that no matter how many sims he ran, Chidi always helped Eleanor try to improve. She isn't ready to be on his team yet, but being reminded of that and finding a team that helped her before is what changes her mind. They can together be for Michael what Chidi was for her. It's like this teams within teams, a kind of makeshift family. Eleanor, of course, as one should when dealing with the devil, has a condition. You want to be on our team, you got to be on our team. He has to take lessons. He has to also do the homework. We are all going to take classes, she says. We are all going to improve. And the second you betray us, I walk into Vicky's chowder shop and tell her everything. But can an effective team bond be formed via ultimatum? This goes back to the idea of motivations that have come up various times throughout season one and two. Tahani's death is revealed to us in this season and her motivations. Incredible scene. Incredible scene. And we find out that Tahani, who we should say again, has done much good in life. She is in the good place that is the bad place because she did those things for the wrong reasons. Started a charity because she wanted to basically be more notable than her extremely charming sister. Camila. My question to you is, should this really matter? Should that matter? When a bad person does something good because they don't want to be punished, or even just as importantly, when a bad person refrains from doing something bad because they don't want to be punished, refrains from committing a crime or attacking someone or whatever, we should praise that. Isn't it too much to hope for that everyone in the world will be good? One of the things that I truly, truly, truly love about this show and respect and admire is that it is not just trying to get us to ask each other that question. It is actively getting the characters to engage with that idea. There are plenty of complex concepts that you can raise as a viewer to say, well, Mm -hmm. does this little nitpick or this huge moral quandary like unravel in some way something fundamental about what this piece of culture is trying to explore. But they're leaning in. On The Good Place, they lean into that idea. You know, when Michael reveals Tahani's death to her and she says, I died in Cleveland? Cleveland? He flat out is like, I don't think that should be your biggest takeaway from that story. And he does ultimately get through to her to the point where she is able to say, I actually want to try to be the person that I always pretended I was trying to be. So she holds on to the idea that the actions, the things that she did had inherent value. In a vacuum, those things have value. But she also comes to see, as they all come to see, that the reasons that she was pursuing those ends matters. You know, those things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And the show's ability to convince the characters and the viewers alike that your motivations can change and they do change is really the heart of its brilliance because that possibility of continued enlightenment and growth, that's how you end up getting what you deserve. There's a fascinating flip side to this conversation, which isn't really touched on in the show, which is just how many terrible things, real life things have happened throughout history for really what you could call good intentions, right? Creating the perfect society, creating a totally equal society. 
there have been many utopian experiments, medical experiments, things that have happened throughout time and history that have caused deaths and destruction that were basically people just trying to make the world a better place. My favorite philosophical principle, just to think about, is John Rawls's The Original Position, because that Mm. is exactly what it asks you to consider, is, is a fair and truly just society even possible? How could it be? And it presupposes that the only way you could even possibly get there, in essence, this is obviously a brief summation of a very complex idea, but if you, in essence, pop into existence, visualize Janet in her warehouse, white walls around you, you have no idea what your stake in the world will be. You don't know what your circumstances will be. And the only way that you can craft a society that would be fair to anyone is if you don't know what your place in it will be, if you are entirely robbed of personal motivation. I love that because I think it's impossible. And so the fact that something like that is so contrary to human nature is what makes it a thought experiment worth considering. Right. So the lessons start slow. As they do with Chidi. (laughs) And Chidi figures out why. Ethics do not matter if you're immortal. This makes plain sense. Yes. If you live forever... What motivation do you have to learn a lesson? You simply move on. You hurt someone. You're never going to be visited by the results of that. You just move on. There need to be stakes. So he asks Michael if he can die. And Michael talks about what will happen when he's retired, essentially. like What that process is, how his molecules will be burned on the surface of suns and his life force scooped out and then poured over burning diamonds. And Chidi is like, okay. And then what does that mean for you? And Michael puts his hands on his face and has this epiphany that Mm -hmm. he would no longer exist in this world. He would not be here. And it sends Michael into an existential tailspin that is played up for incredible laughs, by the way. Can a immortal have a midlife crisis? The answer is yes. The shift from (laughs) existential crisis to midlife crisis. It's really good. From being debilitated by the dread of contemplating mortality to enter into full-on, you can't touch me, I'm in denial phase, is just peak Ted dancing. He shows up, uh, you know, at one of the neighborhood get-togethers in a sports car with Jeanette, who is the version of Janet, has blonde highlights and is wearing a, like, a skin-tight lycra dress and, and is in pumps. As Janet always does. As Janet always does. And yeah, he's, you know, trying to play it off like everything's great, but it's obvious that everything is not great. And the gang is worried about him. We're all just corpses who haven't begun to (laughs) decay. That's the thing that Michael says. And they're absolutely, truly concerned about him. Eleanor doesn't get quite why Michael is struggling so hard to cope with death. And when Chidi pushes her to kind of like assess whether she's really fine, when she experienced death in real life, we get some like really interesting flashbacks. Eleanor breaking down in a bed, bath, and beyond looking at a family toothbrush holder. This is actually, its I mean, this is played for laughs. It's a comedic moment, but it's actually quite touching. Like it's Really poignant. And it's a reminder that Eleanor, she never had a true family, never had people that had her back in real life. She was truly alone. And for the first time, really, ever, ironically, in the afterlife, she's contemplating that cost and also finding common cause with people that she would never have allowed herself to be around in real life. It's the first time that she sees the value in having anybody in her corner. You know who's not alone? Tell me. Right around this point in season two? That's right. Tahani and Jason, because guys, they're fucking. Yeah, whatever the sex version of idiot strength is, Jason has it. (laughs) 
A sincere hope in life is to never have someone you're sleeping with later refer to you as a swamp dweller. <laughs> but <laughs> such is Jason's burden, I guess. Yes. Tahani does not want to reveal their relationship. Stunner, right? right? She's ashamed. And that shame has Why? consequences. Because she's like fucking a dumb guy from Jacksonville? I guess if every episode you're name dropping like three to five right. celebrities or That's members true. of the royal family. I guess you're right. And Beyonce. They just have a higher bar than this. But her shame has consequences because she finally does take Jason's advice and talk to somebody. And who is that somebody? It's Janet. Yeah. She, in confessing to Janet, who, unbeknownst to them, is still harboring some love <laughs> for Jason from yeah. a prior reboot from the original season one timeline when Janet and Jason are married. This triggers a glitch in Janet That's having right. to help these people, having to lie to them about being happy for them when she really has feelings. And it puts the neighborhood in jeopardy. The takeaway here is clear. Friendship, love, these things shouldn't be secrets. They shouldn't be sources of shame. Tahani hiding the team that she is now a part of is costing Janet a thumb. Yes. She's coughing up frogs. That's a tough look. Causing earthquakes. <laughs> yeah. We get a couple really, really, really great lines in this series of events. Tahani is explaining what draws her to he's, Jason. He's the least self-aware person I've ever met. He has massive amounts of unknown confidence and is utterly unaware of his own absurdity. Therefore, quite good at sex. Quite good. Yeah. <laughs> Love the way she says that. And then Jason, how does he characterize their relationship? I'm nice to you and you're mean to me. There's something wrong about that, but I can't put my finger on what it is. Sweet, beautiful idiot. Oh, you Love be- him. <laughs> you dumb, dumb man, you. <laughs> Love him so much. <laughs> Michael. Ultimately rejoins the group lessons. They're able to get him going again. And then very quickly, they have another setback. This isn't going to be easy. Bringing people like this together, getting them to be truly aligned is not going to be a natural thing. It takes time. It has to happen organically. The trolley problem. Yes. One of the great episodes, high comedy. And in the course of that high comedy in which Chidi, in an effort to teach Michael this philosophical principle, has Michael say, I need the, like, I need this to be a little more literal for right. me. This is we a need to abstract. actually do it. Let me snap my fingers and get an actual right. train and you're going to have the flesh bits of the person you've just run over in your mouth. Yeah, it's really disgusting look. Light bulb goes off for Chidi. You're still torturing us, Michael. You're not really on our side. You can't help it. But why is this happening? Is it because Michael is actually still bad? No. The show was more complex than that. That would be a caricature. You know, the demon who is just pretending that he's good. We've already been there. We've already done that. The show has to truly evolve in advance. He is struggling. He is rebelling because he isn't able to grasp the concepts that Chidi is teaching him and He can't cope with the fact that he feels like a failure. That is such a human sensation. And after Michael gives the group what he calls opposite tortures. We call those gifts in real life. (laughs) You mean presents? Yeah, right. Opposite tortures. He offers a more genuine apology to Chidi. He says, I really need your help because I feel so lost and vulnerable. This is a breakthrough. We should say... This is like an incredible piece of acting, this moment, this scene from Ted Danson, because first he delivers an apology to Chidi in a cynical, very sarcastic way. Oh, you want me to say this and this and this? And then when Chidi's like, yes, I actually, I want you to say that, he delivers it in an absolutely sincere way that is like, wow, holy cow, Ted Danson can do it. He's incredible. And that breakthrough that Michael has in that moment of real vulnerability, like he had to let go of control when he initially formed this plan to unite with them. But 
That was out of necessity. This moment here, that sincere apology, that second line reading, he is fully letting go of his inhibitions. He's opting in all the way to this shared experience, to this growth, to being a part of this community. Here's a measure of Michael's growth. Janet's continued glitching is putting the entire structure of the neighborhood in peril. That sub that she dropped on his desk looked (laughs) delicious, though. It really did look good. So she asks Michael to kill her. Not a reboot this time. She's, of course, been rebooted many, many, many times, and each time she's changed a little bit. She wants him to set her to self-destruct, but he can't do it. Why, he says. The reason is friends. You're my friend, Janet. That's why I can't kill you. We've been through so much together. For me, our relationship has become important. You're my oldest, truest, most loyal friend. I can't just get rid of you and replace you with some other Janet that I don't know. And this is like truly touching. And also, again, we come back to this issue of the interior life of another person or thing. Janet continually says, I am not a girl. I am not a person. I am not a human being. And yet the way she presents herself, the way she obviously is in the form of a human being, makes it hard to escape that feeling that she is. She must be. And doesn't that mean you should treat her as such? So who does Michael call on for help? Eleanor. And everyone is helping each other now, like real friends, a real family. Eleanor gives Janet, quickly spiraling into depression over her glitching and the fact that Jason and Tahani are together. So Eleanor gives her a pep talk. You're awesome. You contain all the knowledge in the universe. You have a ripping bod. You can literally do anything. That doesn't go quite as planned. She's like, you know, you should just go find dudes. So what does Janet do? She doesn't need to find dudes. She can make dudes. She, she makes a boyfriend. Derek. Played by our friend Jason Manzoukas. Maximum Derek. So one day Janet shows up and is like, this is my new rebound boyfriend. Derek. I made him. <laughs> <laughs> Which becomes like another whole problem for them to solve. Because first of all, Derek, great first attempt at making a boyfriend, I got to say. Wonderful. He's in the shape of a man. He, well, <laughs> we'll get to that. He's wearing clothes. He can speak. And recognize his reflection in a mirror, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever that means. He will tell you that his name is Derek, which is good. (laughs) He has wind chimes for a penis, but he also is threatening at every turn to blow their cover because, you know, he's not all the way there as like an actual human being. And as their relationship, you know, the relationship that Janet has with this man that she created that has wind chimes for a penis slowly devolves, they bicker in extremely humorous ways. Hysterical. Yeah. Even Janet gets to experience the pure humanity of arguing with a boyfriend. Should the group tell Jason and Tahani what is causing Janet's glitch? This becomes the question of the moment because... Doing so, having a candid discussion, finding this clarity will help facilitate the path to eliminating Derek and thus solving their problems, covering their asses. But here's the question. It's not permissible to ruin their happiness to save ourselves. This is what Chidi offers up as a reminder. It's okay to keep a secret as long as it's not harming anyone. This is also pertinent to Eleanor because she is thinking, of course, about the VHS tape she has of the (laughs) confession that she and Chidi shared with each other in another existence. From the looking hole. (laughs) Call it my looking hole. Eleanor's growth is a constant yeah. now. She shows Chidi the tape. You know, what if they're out of time? What if she doesn't have another opportunity? Is a lie of omission still a lie? These are the things that she's asking herself because Eleanor is at the point of growth where things that are happening to other people force her to look inward. Right. She has another heart-to-heart with Michael who comes to her seeking more counsel. Yet again, he wants to know, how can I be good at ethics? And she says, it does get rid of the little voice. This right. will be a key exchange later on. Yes. Because at least I'm trying to do the right thing instead of the crappy thing. And he thanks her for today. And she says, wow, you really did just come here to chat, didn't you? It's a very human thing to do. She has basically moved into official team 
leader mode. Feels briefly like things are going swimmingly, but ah, there's a rub. There always is. Boss man's here. Sean's here. And he tells Michael, really loving what you're doing here. (laughs) Yeah. This is great. I never had a doubt. I'm going to promote you. He wants Michael to pack up the neighborhood, go on to the next great thing. And Michael, we think in the moment for a minute, has turned on the four of them, on Jason, on Tahani, Chidi, and Eleanor. They're debating, should we flee? Should we go to the medium place? Should we trade information on Michael with Sean to show what he was really up to the whole time and try to get a better situation for ourselves? And Eleanor, of all people, is the last one to hold on to trust. She asks them to take a leap of faith, just like the homie Kierkegaard would want. She says, when Michael was mocking us about trying to become better people, whose name did he use? I think he was sending us a message to take a leap of faith because that was Kierkegaard's thing, right? Clues, codes, being in cahoots. This is true friend stuff, true team stuff. And we see this reach to the next level at the comedy roast where- What a great roast. Incredible stuff in this like farce of an event, we'll come to find out, to wrap up the neighborhood. Michael is just issuing savage barbs. But thanks to a timely assist from our main dude, Derek (laughs) Bortles, Bortles. (laughs) Eleanor managed to hold on to that last shred of hope and eventually decode these instructions that Michael was masking under his savagery. Incredible sleuthing there because I was not able to follow this. There's the great moment where they're like, yeah, we got all four of your clues. And he's like, I left you 1,200. I know, right? (laughs) Not a great ratio, guys. What were the clues that they picked up on? Have Derek take the train to Mindy's to fake their exit and then hide under the next train. This is exactly where you should be. That was what Michael said to them. And at the last song, get under there. Everyone else will leave. You'll be fine. They won't know that you were really in the neighborhood the whole time. Good thing that the trolley problem involved a train that wound up coming in quite handy. When the train pulls away and Michael sees that they were, in fact, hiding on the tracks. I was so scared for you. Eleanor's like, I told you he was on our side. You're my friends and I wanted to save you. It's beautiful. And then they're alone in the neighborhood. What's next? Well, here's a hot air balloon (laughs) that Michael says will take them to the actual good place. Just one problem. He lied about knowing how to get to the actual good place. When he first convinced them to partner up, he does not have this information. He's a demon. He's a demon. I mean, that happens, People do what they have to do to get what they need. Very human, again. And so they all throw themselves a goodbye party. They can't stay around forever. Sean wants this thing wrapped up. He thinks they're all at Mindy's, but really they have just said a, quote, willing sex robot. That's pretty (laughs) good. I will say, incredible moment as Derek knocks on Mindy's door to full Duffel bags of cocaine slung over his shoulder and says, I have a wind chime for genitals. And you hear the sound. And Mindy says, I can work with that. She drags him inside. She has been working with a lot less for a lot longer, (laughs) you know. And back in the neighborhood, our heroes, our protagonists are talking quite a bit about important things like yogurt-induced diarrhea and what their real good places would look like, what their real bad places would look like. And they toast and they compliment each other. And it's really lovely. Chidi says about Michael, he admitted he was wrong. And that makes him better than 90% of humans. They give Michael a starter kit, a human starter kit full of useless garbage like a Dr. Oz book and he feels like he belongs and they dance. But Team Cockroach never quits, Jason. When Michael tells them that it's impossible to state their case to the judge and he then presents a map of what the afterlife actually is because to do that would require 
actually traveling through the bad place to get to the central area where the judge presides over the balance between the good and the bad place. In other words, you got to go through hell to get to heaven. But they don't quit. Michael says, all I've ever really wanted was to know what it feels like to be human. And now we're going to do the most human thing of all. Attempt something futile with a ton of unearned confidence and fail spectacularly. I love that so much. So bad Janet calls a train, gets marbleized. Good Janet gives everyone disguises. Jason, of course, picks (laughs) as his alias, Jake Jortles. From the Molotov cocktail department. But ironically, (laughs) along with Tahani... Kind of the best guy at being in the bad place. Is it ironic? It goes back to what (laughs) we were talking about the last episode. They fit in. Yeah. They don't have a hard time faking it at all. Eleanor's a little bit uncomfortable. Chidi is a wreck. Chidi is like, what is happening? And Jason is kind of like, ball tap. Yeah, ball tap, guys. (laughs) By the way, let me just say this. A lot of guys out there have gone through the ball tap time in their lives. What a hellish time. (laughs) Hell is hanging around with dudes who are doing the ball tap because it's just like a constant sense of unease. Hell is other people's ball taps. It's terrible. (laughs) They wind up at the Museum of Human Misery and Eleanor, in a very sweet little moment, tells Michael to be careful. She's worried. They all really are worried about each other. They care about each other. And... Chidi is freaking out. You know, they're all walking right. around. Other demons are there. We're getting these glimpses of these hilarious monuments to human horror and idiocy. Right. You know, the the first man to say, well, actually, to a woman, I think was my favorite. And Chidi can't lie. He can't give advice on torturing others, which is what is being asked of him. And Eleanor drops moral particularism on him. This was the one moment where I was like, you know what? I don't believe that Chidi would not be able to lie under these circumstances. If someone comes to you and is like, and you know that that person is looking to harm something, and you know where that thing is, and you lie, that's fine, guys. Well, he does it eventually with a little help from Eleanor, with a little help from his teammate. He found that clarity that he needed. And the thing is, that moral particularism wasn't one of his assigned readings. And it is one of the purest moments. Self-starter. Purest moments of growth exhibited by any of the characters because Eleanor has started to learn on her own how to get better. And Chidi, thanks to seeing that growth in Eleanor, finds the confidence and the comfort to adjust when the circumstances require. Sean. Yes. Realizes. What a voice he has, by the way. So good. Realizes that they're not at Mindy's. Who's there? An unknown man with a general <laughs> deformity. <laughs> <laughs> so phenomenal. Uh, and Michael, realizing that the cover's about to be blown, Sean's right. onto them. He flees this meeting. He grabs some, some blazers, steals the pins that they're going to need to get into the portal to get to the judges' chambers. Uh-oh, they're short one. He sends Chidi, Tani, and Jason through, and then he turns to Eleanor. And I got to say, I was a mess at this part. This was yeah. so touching. He says to Eleanor, hey, guess what? Yeah. I just solved the trolley problem. See, the trolley problem forces you to choose between two versions of letting other people die. The solution is actually very simple. Sacrifice yourself. You look after the others. They need you. And then he gives her the pin and pushes right. her through. Sacrifices himself for the good of the team. Truly beautiful. Ah, and where does that team end we up? We meet the burrito judge, Judge Jen, <laughs> who likes to flavor her burritos with the concept of envy. Delicious. Not actually envy itself. The concept, only the concept of envy. And she says that they should not be there because they don't have a lawyer an advocate, and it's a subtle reminder that their advocacy for each other is what has carried them to this point. But (laughs) 
quote, it's either this or start bloodlines. <laughs> so let's go. So Truly a savage burn on the Netflix series starring Coach Taylor. So Jen gives them all tests. They want to be tested as a group, but no, she wants to test them individually. They insist on being graded as a group, though. So Jen says, even if one of you fails, you won't go. Terrible idea. Truly awful. But they've all come to realize at this point and what the audience has as well, heaven for them is to be with each other. They all want to get through or none of them will get through. She did Honey and Jason all fail their tests. Eleanor passes hers. No surprise, I think, but refuses to let Jen reveal that to the group. The person who would have given anything to in life to get daps and not be shit on by her betters doesn't want others to feel the shame of their failure. Eleanor's condemning herself to internal damnation so they don't feel sad. And Jen tells him, guys, you're all going to the bad place. Meanwhile, Michael is sitting there, Sean's office, and he says, you're basic. It's a human expression. It's devastating. You're devastated <laughs> right now. Which <laughs> So good. Michael is rescued by good Janet, who chokes out Sean, throws him against the wall. Masquerading as bad Janet. And actually doing a good job Phenomenal. this time. She was, it was iffy for a while. She managed to get to the place where she was able to say, you junked your jeans. So she, 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 found, she got where she needed to get. By the way, good Janet reveals herself after Sean says, and now uh, here's bad Janet to take you away. But first she will unleash the fart that will last for 10 million years or something. It's just you, your stack of New Yorkers, right. and Janet's lingering fart. For, uh, it lingers for 10 million years. Michael yes. had made a plea to Sean before this moment. He had said, I was just trying to prove that humans could be made to torture each other. Instead, they got better and helped each other. And he's imploring him to listen, to understand there was a mistake made. These people belong in the good place. Sean, this is not fair. And when he actually does, thanks to faux Janet, get through the portal into the judge's chambers with Janet. He makes the same plea to the judge as Janet is confessing her love to Jason and Cheedy is finally kissing Eleanor. Hot diggity dog. Michael argues that the system they're using to judge people is flawed. The points stop when real life stops, but these people have shown that you can continue to get better after that. So they reach a compromise. All of you will go to the medium place. Like Mindy, the group... Not into this idea. Why? They'd rather be in hell together than in purgatory alone. They are a unit. They are one. And Jen is like, you guys might want to chill a bit with this we're such good people thing because y'all didn't get good enough to pass the test I just gave you, which is a good note. Jason struggling having to play the Titans in Madden (laughs) against the Jags, though he did win. You're supposed to do good things because you're good, not because you're seeking moral dessert. This concept of moral dessert will come up again later. Michael's response to that comment sparks his final stroke of genius. He says, and I still think they would have become good people if they've just gotten a push. Ah, a push. What if facing death as Michael did Earlier in the season, when Cheedy forced him to think about his own mortality, to confront the possibility that he might not have another chance, what if that is the push that these humans need to get better? He snaps his fingers. Just for a second, this concept of moral desert is fascinating to me because does Judge Jen presume then that people on Earth do not have a belief system that involves some kind of afterlife that rewards a person for a life well lived? And is that not then 
a motivation for literally billions of people on the planet. Tough to see how she would be able to separate that from people's experiences. And if that's the case, then you have to believe that the good place of our good place, the show, must be very thinly populated. So he snaps. And what happens? Eleanor finds herself back at the Ralph's. Is it a Ralph's? <laughs> back at the moment when she is castigating the environmental worker, she drops the lonely gal margarita mix and in bending to pick it up, is struck by a truck carrying erectile dysfunction. Bah, ah, but someone appears. We don't know who it is. Saves her from this fate. Realizing how close she came to death, Eleanor endeavors to change her life. Couple moments, by the way, where yeah. someone acts in some sort of key fashion and we don't see the man who rescues Eleanor from being hit by the cart. So there's a person, a woman, I yeah. think, positioned near her at the bar later on. Might these people come back into play later? Possible. Right. So Eleanor slowly becomes a better person. She posts a resolution to be a better person on social media, apologizes to the environmental activist. In fact, becomes an environmental activist herself. She becomes a vegetarian, which tough look if that's part of the prerequisite for being a good person and getting to the good place, I think, for not only many, many people in, across the world, but you and I sitting here. She confesses to dress bitch in a truly- Incredible scene. That was a tough moment. But it doesn't last. She loses patience. She loses her drive because there's no one there to keep her going. Meanwhile, somewhere in the afterlife, Michael and Janet are watching the points come across this like 1920s stock ticker. And Michael can see that his plan is beginning to falter. And so he says to Janet, you realize what the problem is, right? And Janet says, yes, but there's no way to help. Ah, but is ah, there? Is there? Eleanor shows up at Sting's Desert Rosé. And Michael, in a great, 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 great Easter egg to Ted Dance's time as Sam Malone on Cheers, is standing there tending bar. It's a Truly great exchange, highlighting everything about his growth, their shared growth, yes. and, and the nature of deciding to care about not only improving yourself, but bettering the lives of others. And, and she says, you know the problem with being a do-gooder? Nobody cares. And then Michael tells her, she's talking about moral dessert, the concept that if you act with virtue, you deserve a reward. She says, I'm not going to get reward. Why should I do good things? And he tells her about a friend who is actually her in the good place. Right who had a voice in her head saying, you know that this is wrong and how it went away when she started doing good things. And he continued, she was a little rough around the edges, but she was also really a good person when she tried. I think that little voice was her conscience trying to guide her in the right direction. And they continue, Eleanor says, I, I gotta go home, what do I owe you? And he says, the real question, Eleanor, is what do we owe each other? And this seems to spark something inside the of her. The way that he says that, I got such a chill watching that. It was like everything the show had been working toward for 26 installments right. coming together in one moment. The real question, Eleanor, is what do we owe to each other? What do we owe to each other? That's what these people have been trying to find out together for all that time. And it lingers. It sticks in Eleanor's mind. And she wakes up the next morning hungover and Googles the phrase. Slightly wrong Googling, but yes. it's okay. up That's eventually. Why I Google things wrong all the time. There you every go. Day. Our own Janet. Yeah. And... YouTube clips of Cheedy lecturing on TM Scanlon's What We Owe to Each Other come up. Simply put, she hears Cheedy say, we are not in this alone. And she boards a plane to find him in Sydney. Are you Cheedy Anna Kendrick? And <laughs> she says, can we talk? Cut to Michael. Okay, here we go. Time for season three, guys. They really 
can't get better on their own because no one can. They have to help each other. You know, series creator Michael Schur has been pretty open about the fact that his show is in large part influenced by Lost. And I think you can really look at the last three episodes of, of this season as the successful version. And I don't mean to pile on Lost again. Lost is a great show, one of my favorite shows of I all love time. Lost. Pure, truly one of my favorite shows. But really, the successful version of what Lost Penny. was trying to do with its final season, which is have its characters transcend the mysteries that kind of fueled the show for so long and find a pure kind of redemption. And I think The Good Place season two really achieved that. It was really great. It's remarkable storytelling. Here's a question yes. that bubbled up immediately because the internet is amazing. Yeah. The Great Debate. Yeah. What is actually happening here in right. this finale? Is this an in-real-life do-over? Did Michael send... Eleanor, Chidi, presumably Tahani and right. Jason, because we see tickers for all four right. of them. To another timeline. Back to, yeah. like, actual mortal existence, or is this another simulation? Couple points in favor for either case scenario. So, in real life, Michael and Jen, when they're discussing, when Michael's like, oh my god, I got it, and she's like, yeah. oh my god, no, you're crazy, they discuss the issue of precedent. So I think it's fair to say, why would precedent matter if this is just a simulation? Precedent would in theory involve actually resetting their lives and giving them another chance. There's also Janet saying to Michael when he's like, you know what's off here? Yeah, but there's no way to help. That indicates maybe an actual separation, an right. actual divide. And then, of course, there's all the other people who are in their lives who are there. Like These aren't demons playing right. roles or other people who have died and are in this existence with them. Could they be projections who are in the same, or do they have to be real? We don't know enough about how these neighborhoods and how these simulations and universes work to really know for sure. And then there's the point counter. You know, we, we know it's established canon that that stops. It's canon. It's canon when life ends. But does it? Because Eleanor is changing her point total in season one. Of course, that is a simulation. So even the points that are in favor of it being real life still have counterpoints. What about some of the points in favor of it being a simulation? Michael appearing uh, behind the bar at Sting's Desert Rosé. For one, can he do that? We don't know. I mean, this show is fantastical. We don't know what the extent of his powers are, but certainly that would seem to lend credence to this being some other kind of sim. Erasing the rest of human race, the last however number of their years as time has gone on since the deaths of these four characters to prove a point with only four people would seem to violate something about what Michael has learned. And then yes. Chidi, speaking English. Right. We, this we could know, be a retcon. It could be a retcon. But, but that's we not really how the show operates. I mean, listen, if we're talking about canon, it's canon from season one when Eleanor is like, French. how do I understand yeah. you? That's just how it works in The Good Place. Right. You only it's, hear me speaking English because it's translating for you. I am speaking exactly. French. Exactly. And you know what? I would not be surprised, actually, if this exact discussion is going on in the writer's room of The Good Place as we speak. But does it really matter? That's the thing that's interesting to me. I, I love that this is going to be a debate and a thing that people are talking about. I feel like probably I'll have – I have a different opinion now than right. I did last night. Yeah. And I'll probably have a different opinion tomorrow I than I do now. I initially thought real life. Yeah. Now I'm leaning sim. I am leaning sim as well. I am remaining open-minded. I want to continue to think about it a little more. Don't tweet at me about being wrong, my dudes. <laughs> gonna I, I want to keep thinking about it a little more, yeah. but I'm okay with yeah. either outcome because the show has done enough to earn either outcome. It has convinced me that either thing could be possible, and that's miraculous. Yeah, I agree. Mal. Yeah. Blake Bortles is a cool name. Derek Bortles is a dumb name. 
Yes, Derek Bortles is indeed a very dumb <laughs> name. It's a clue. There's no way Michael would have forgotten the name Blake Bortles. You say it a million times a day. Because he's the best. No, he's not. And even I know that because I watched the Jaguars break Tough. hearts worldwide by losing the AFC Championship game to the Patriots this year. This Bortles became a super meme. But there's Blake still Bortles. more I need to know. So... Please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Just ask Maximum Derek to point the way. Teach us everything we need to know about some of the other famous real-life sports references in TV history. Jason Mendoza's sincere affection for Blake Bortles was delightful, deranged, and against all odds, timely. As Mal said in episode one of this pod, Jason is a trendsetter, presaging a shocking Blake Bortles cultural relevance. It's a fun TV sports crossover moment, and it got us thinking about other great sports-themed episodes and arcs in, in television. Here are some of our favorites. From Seinfeld, The Boyfriend, parts one and two from 1992, Keith Hernandez, who, should be noted, recently celebrated New Year's Eve at Mar-a-Lago, just saying, appeared as himself in this classic arc, a rare two-parter for Seinfeld, exploring the mystery of whether Keith spit on Kramer after a Mets-Phillies game in 1987. The episode satirizes Oliver Stone's JFK, particularly the court scene where Kevin Costner's Jim Garrison lays out his JFK assassination theory to hilarious effect. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. This scene is on YouTube. Go watch it. Really for no other reason than to see the wild 90s fashions and Jerry's shirt, which I would describe as like some kind of Guido pizza print. 90s fashions were wild, folks. Same season, the limo. George and Jerry need to get home from Kennedy Airport, but George's car is broken down. So they see a driver holding a sign for someone named O'Brien. So they do the thing that normal people do, which is impersonate O'Brien in order to get in the limo and go home. And on the way, the driver tells them that actually he can't take them to their apartments. The destination of this limo is Madison Square Garden and that he has the four passes. So George figures out that, oh, this must mean the limo is going to the Knicks-Bulls game. Aha, and so now they must have four free tickets to this extremely sought-after matchup in the NBA. So they use the car phone to call Kramer and Elaine and they're like, hey, we got tickets to the Knicks-Bulls game. But then it is quickly revealed that the mysterious O'Brien is one of the country's leading white supremacists and he's in town to give a talk. Aha! Parks and Rec, another Mike Shure comedy. Ron and Tammy's from 2011. Tom Haverford and John Ralph Saperstein's misbegotten lifestyle brand multimedia boondoggle entertainment 720 is just one of the most delightful subplots of Parks. Mystified as to why his company is hemorrhaging cash like a patient on house, Tom asks Ben, played by Adam Scott, also appears in The Good Place, to examine the firm's finances. And as it turns out, if you splurge on lavish, high-tech offices, Silicon Valley-style amenities, and then hire two ex-Pacers, Detlef Schrempf and Roy Hibbert, who actually was with the Pacers at that time, to just kind of hang around and do stuff, you're going to lose money if you do that, especially if you're not actually bringing in money. Anyway, then there's two parties from 2013. Chris Traeger pulled a few strings for Andy's bachelor party. He gets Andy and the guys into Lucas Hall Stadium, where the Indianapolis Colts play. Andy gets to meet Reggie Wayne and team owner and notable piece of human wreckage, Jimmer say. And the mind boggles, actually, when you watch this, like it's also on YouTube, the mind boggles it just like trying to consider how many takes it probably took Jim Ursay to say like his two lines. Anyway, Andy wearing, it must be said, an absurdly baggy pair of tan cargo pants catches a touchdown pass from uh, Colts QB Andrew Luck. All in all, a great night for our folks from Pawnee. Ballers. 
from 2015 to present. Basically everything in Ballers. Ballers as a conceit. Ballers the show. In particular, the ringer's own Mike Lombardi's cameo in, in Ballers. And it's always sunny in Philadelphia slash MLB fan cave. In season four of the show, which aired in 2008, Mac, the self-proclaimed sheriff of Patty's Pub, mentioned that he wrote a letter to Chase Utley, then the second baseman for the Phillies. Utley then would go on to answer the letter on MLB's web fan cave series where various MLBers answer questions from fans, which aired in 2013, five years later, showing yet again MLB's impeccable sense of timing and engagement with popular culture. Utley would go on to go hitless at 15 at-bats this postseason as a member of the LA Dodgers. And just to round out the Philly slash Patriots Super Bowl theme for the Super Bowl matchup that's coming up this Sunday. Tom Brady was mentioned numerous times in The Family Guy, but he actually voiced himself once in the episode Patriot Games from 2006. Mal, yeah, you're not going to write us out, right? Well, Jason, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last... 1.3 milliseconds, and uh, I'm not allowed to lie. Yeah. But my purpose is to make humans happy. Oh. And since you're the only actual humans here, just you and Isaac and Cahill this and Cram. Great. This is great. <laughs> I'm on board for whatever fun little schemes you guys come up with. So let's head to the Sept, which is, <laughs> uh, of course, in Janet's void, so that we can bathe in the light of the Seven by ranking seven of our favorite iterations of Janet from this season, oh, still yeah. lightning around style. We should say, just a little broad Janet talk here. You know, thanks to Eleanor. Yes. Some of you might know Janet as Busty Alexa. Ooh. But to most of us, she's just Janet. That's right. Janet, you just need to hear the one word, the one name, and you know that you're talking about someone beloved by all. We learn that there have been 25 versions from the warehouse. Right. Think of it like a new iPhone. Right. Right? Like new Janet Factory tech. settings. But our Janet... It's very special because she tells us that each reboot makes her more socially aware. Right. And so thanks to the 800 plus reboots that this version, this 25th version right. of Janet, has experienced under Michael, she says, I might be the most advanced Janet in the universe. And we're really benefiting from that advancement. 100%. Because Janet is the gift that keeps on giving. She's a vital part of season one. She is one of the true stars of season two. And so while we are always technically talking about version 25 of Janet, there are all these different iterations yes. of Janet. She has so many different roles, so many different versions, like all the different Froyo flavors in The Good Place. And we love them all. But here are seven of our favorites. Number one, going to go rogue here. Going to go dark right off the top. Bad Janet. I love, I love Bad Janet. <laughs> I got to say I love Bad Janet. Bad Janet is super mean. The thing about Bad Janet that I will acknowledge that what makes her great is the contrast to regular Janet. Yes. But it's just delightful when she shows up. True, like, side-splitting laughter every time <laughs> she has a scene. And something else is splitting, too, and it's her pants because she just is <laughs> letting them rip constantly. She has these fierce farts that are basically, like, weaponized. They're, they're used as insults. They're used as mic drops. And they're also apparently capable of torturing you for 10 million years. 10 million is a lot of time for a fart to linger in, in an area. <laughs> My goodness. What's number two? Drunk Janet. Now, Drunk Janet <laughs> is Janet whose wrists are bound by magnetic bonds. Magnets make Janet really loopy, make her essentially drunk. And man, Drunk Janet is what just riot. saying some wild shit. And I'm a big fan. Something, something, something. Yeah. Vicky, Vicky something, something. something. 
Number three, this is sort of technically two different Janets, but they're really connected. Creator Janet, you know, godlike Janet. Yeah. Janet the creator. And girlfriend Janet. Janet, after some sage guidance from Eleanor, who definitely knows how to process your emotions and find a man, builds a boyfriend. Derek. (laughs) Derek. (laughs) Once again, Derek. (laughs) Maximum Derek. And then proceeds to bicker and argue with him in tremendous fashion. There's also a delightful scene for girlfriend Janet where she has to reabsorb some of the essence (laughs) that she's put into Derek. And boy, do we get to hear those wind chime sounds then. (laughs) You know, we got a taste of girlfriend Janet when she was with Jason. Oh, that was a really cute relationship. Back in season one, very sweet. And this is a different look at what Janet's like in a relationship. It's great stuff. You have to think if Jason and Janet had been more successful. Mm Mm-hmm. In figuring out how to the do triple the double, sex, how to do the, the sex, trombone, the web any, crawler, any the leapfrog, <laughs> <laughs> the centipede, any of it. If they had figured it out, maybe Derek wouldn't have wind chimes between his legs. <laughs> Such a good point. <laughs> anyway, number four, glitchy Janet. Now, uh, glitchy Janet love glitchy is Janet. glitching because of her emotions, and she's horrified by the fact that Jason and Tehani are together and she's not handling it well. Various other things are happening. And this is causing not only the world to fall apart, but her structural integrity of her body to come apart. She is coughing up frogs and really grossly. She gives a thumbs up and her thumb flies (laughs) off and floats into the air. Positively Tom Brady-esque, you know, (laughs) the debilitating (laughs) thumb injury. I just love the way she says, I'm broken. I'm broken. She's so cheerful. Her deliveries are so good. When Michael's like, what's up? She's like, well, I fear this neighborhood is in danger of total collapse. So that's the main thing. Yeah. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) And not to dime out our producer, Jason Cahill, we spent a significant time on Darcy Carden's AMA the other day. He's a fan. He's a big fan. (laughs) (laughs) Of all Janets. Across time. Of all Janets. Number five. Yeah. Jeanette. <laughs> Jeanette. Love Jeanette. Midlife crisis Michael's side piece? Yes. Well, I mean, it's really just technically Janet Janet. Yes. One of the rebooted Janets. Right. But just with, <laughs> with blonde hair wearing like a pink dress. Incredible. Just ready for a good time. Just happy to have a good time. Loves a fast car and a flashy man. <laughs> a night on the town. Love it. Janet is... So down for whatever situation. That's what's wonderful about her. And just cheerful throughout anything. Love her. Yeah. Number six, good Janet pretending to be bad Janet. In other words, faux bad Janet. Definitely the most clutch Janet. So clutch. They go to the bad place and Janet pretending to be bad Janet is at times struggling with the responsibility of trying to be bad. And she's saying stuff like, yeah, you guys suck and get out of here. But at the end, when it comes time to save Michael from the clutches of Sean, who is about to consign Michael to not only retirement, but 10 million years inhaling fart smells, (laughs) Bad Janet casts off the disguise and comes through in the clutch. Also, marbleizing another Janet (laughs) is pure, (laughs) vicious savagery that shows how much she means it when she says she's ride or die. Right. Like she is truly ride or die. Ride or die protocol has been engaged. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That was technically part of girlfriend Janet, I yeah. guess, but what a, what a woman. And number seven, some of the 
purest joy and purest bliss from watching this show, both in seasons one and two, yes. comes from the kill switch Janet scenes where oh she will alternate between saying, you know what? You I'm can't not really al- hurt me. I'm not alive. I'm not alive. This I'm not a fine. person. Yeah. This is fine. And then because this is right. how she has been programmed, begging for her life. We saw this play out in <laughs> hilarious fashion yeah. with... Eleanor and Chidi in season one. And this season, we get a taste of it with Michael, who has to reboot her time and again. Michael! Michael! (laughs) If I'm gone, who will take care of my birds? (laughs) Michael! No, 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 no! I'm pregnant! And it's your baby! (laughs) And then she's holding up a... a Holding up a, an ultrasound skin. I have tickets to Hamilton next week. <laughs> She's incredible. She really is. Every Janet, I think we can say. What a gal. Is the best Janet. The best. Janet is the good place. What a gal. Mal. Yeah. In the words of one of my actual friends, you basic. <laughs> it's a human insult. It's devastating. You're devastated right now. I am. I thought I was one of your actual friends. <laughs> Decidedly not basic, today's winner every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And this week, we're awarding our champion's purse, paid out in soul food from Maine, bagels from Arkansas, <laughs> Hawaiian pizza, and egg salad from a hospital vending machine in Azerbaijan, to Michael. Yes. Ted Danson is incredible. Tour de force for Ted Danson, who it's easy to take him for granted, I think, because he's just been a part of people's lives for so long. If you watch TV at all over the last 30 to 40 years, you're just aware of his work. And then you see him in this context in a really incredible ensemble cast, as he's always been incredible ensemble cast. And he just gets to do such a wide range of wacky stuff that you really realize, whoa, I mean, like, He's good. I am still thinking about that moment that we talked about where he very sarcastically says, oh, Chidi, you wanted me to say, uh, you know, this and that. And then when Chidi's like, yes, I wanted you to say that, he says it sincerely. And it's such a gear shift. And it's from one side of the spectrum to the other. It's jaw-dropping. And in season two, you know, we get to see him in the early episodes replay a lot of the scenarios where he's trying to trick them into thinking they're in the good place. But this time we get the shot lingering for an extra second on his face where he's laughing or he's raising an eyebrow or he's mocking them in some way. And just the role actually became a lot harder this season, but his performance was better than ever. And and all of the members of the core cast are exceptional. You know, we should shout them all out. Kristen Bell is unbelievable. Really great. As Eleanor. William Jackson Harper. I mean, everybody is so good. Tremendous. Your girl. Love her. Jamila Jamil. Very huge fan of Jamila Jamil, who is dropping names like nobody's business has and has an accent that sounds like the perfect clink of a teacup (laughs) being placed daintily on a saucer. Say aluminum. (laughs) Aluminium. (laughs) Darcy Carden is absolutely incredible. Janet, Manny Jacinto is, his level of celebrity this season has risen maybe as much as anyone's on TV, thanks in large part to Derek Bortles and the cultural sensation that he has been a part of. But the entire cast is incredible. And Ted Danson is, in many ways, the through line of this season, where no matter who he's in a scene with, it's all just perfect. And then in terms of Michael, the character, you know, we went through a lot of this when we talked about the theme of teamwork and friendship because his character arc is so core to how the team comes together. But... You know, to just in the the macro, big, broad strokes level here. What did Michael do this season? You know, even before he 
reformed, when he was still a bad guy, before his reverse heel turn, he showed such a conviction and love for his craft that he attempted 802 versions of the neighborhood. That's really admirable commitment. (laughs) I mean, he was about it. He loved it. He started stress eating, which is, I I certainly relate to and applaud. Before his be a good person lessons even began, he showed a very human tendency to be ruled by the instinct of self-preservation. Then he joined the good guys. He experienced existential crisis and a midlife crisis. He opened his heart and his mind. He learned what it meant to be human and to become a part of the team. His refusal to actually really kill Janet because at some point she says, no, I don't need to reboot. I need to self-destruct. I want out. Get rid of me. I am a danger. He refuses because he actually cares about her. Right. He refuses to turn the group over to Sean, jeopardizing his like eternal damnation. He doesn't know that Sean's just going to put him in a room with Janet's right. farts and a bunch of New Yorkers <laughs> that he'll never read. That was such a the great York- joke, but they just keep <laughs> coming. <laughs> I love the New Yorker, by the way. Me too. So good. <laughs> When they're low on pins, he sacrifices himself. He convinces Jan the judge that these people are worth trying something radical for. And he argues that, in in fact, maybe it's not just them. Maybe the very nature of what they are doing, of how the demons are conducting business, is misguided and flawed and in need of change. And so, in short, he grows and he learns and he starts to love. And he does exactly what he is crediting his human charges for doing. He becomes a better being. And he tends bar. Shouts to Michael. Shouts to Michael. Shouts to Ted Danson, who really is a treasure of humanity. What do you think about the way his eyebrows are always just like perfectly below the ridge of his glasses? It's incredible. He is the master of the knowing look. Incredible knowing looks from Ted Danson. So good. So good. All right, friends. Yes. If this isn't a test, it's something way worse. A choice. And yet, we must wrap. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited for Binge Mode Harry Potter as we are. Done, done, done. And that you'll join us next Thursday for the latest installment of Binge Mode Weekly. Until then, remember, axe up. Oh, new son? Transformers. Yeah, it makes you smell the way uh, Transformers movies make you feel. Is flying down to the Caribbean on a little plane called Air Force One with my friend Barry. Well, I was in Los Angeles with my good friend Shaquille, who you may know is a very large man. He's incredible piggyback rides. My, this doctor was passed on to me by my good friend Tom, you might know. He plays pitcher for the football team from Boston. And he uh, says if you drink 25 glasses of water a day, that uh, you will never become ill, and I, I haven't. I was speaking with my friend Chewbacca. I'll never forget the thing he said to me. He said, And I was like, yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Ezra Pound is absolutely the greatest romantic poet.